I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, a podcast for enthusiastic and engaged readers, and it'll help you discover new books in all genres. It'll give you unique insights into your favorite authors and especially keep you up to date on what's going on in the literary world. I was really excited about welcoming James Foreman Jr. to the show and had the pleasure of sitting down with him in our New Haven studios to talk about his latest book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. The conversation was so good that we decided to air it in two parts. You can hear the second part of my interview next week on Just the Right Book. So let's take a listen to my conversation with James. We are joined today by James Foreman, who has brought his considerable experience as a public defender, a law clerk for the Supreme Court, a Yale Law School professor, an author, and a charter school founder to the complicated, tricky minefield topic of race and incarceration in his new book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. The raves, respect, and conversation he has brought to this subject is best exemplified by this review from the Wall Street Journal. An honest and balanced book, Locking Up Our Own, doesn't play down the history of racism in our criminal justice system, but it does explain why racial bias doesn't tell the whole story. If we are going to have a national conversation about race in the United States, a book like Locking Up Our Own ought to set the tone. If it did, these debates would not only be more honest, but also more civil. And I couldn't I couldn't agree more with the work that you've done. So, James, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, James, this is in the rate of incarceration for blacks and particularly black males is not a new problem. What prompted you to attack this now? Well, I've been thinking about this since I worked as a public defender in Washington, D.C. And you're right, it's not a new problem. In fact, the reality of these racial disparities, the reality of the United States locking up more people than any other nation on earth, that had brought me to be a public defender. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I got to the public defender's office in Washington, D.C., I saw that there was a way in which the story was yet more complicated than even I had understood Mm -hmm. because D.C. is a majority African-American city. There's African-American mayor. There's black police chief. There's black judges. Forty percent of the judges are African-American. And even in that city with all of that African-American representation, the chief prosecutor was Eric Holder when I was a public defender. And even there, with all of that African-American representation in the justice system, we still had those same racial disparities. And so I really started puzzling um, over how this could be. And so I felt like there was a part of the story that hadn't been told. You know, nobody had written about what's happened in this country in our criminal justice system through the lens of black elected officials and black mm. prosecutors and black judges and black police officers. You know, what were what were they thinking? What were we thinking over the last 50 years? Because black people weren't just sitting on the sidelines, right? We weren't only the victims of the system. We were that. But we also, in many cities, were people in operation of parts of those systems. So how to make sense of that? And that's the story that I wanted to try to tell. And so one of the store, one of the first strands that you address is 
there was a movement in the 70s to legalize marijuana. Now, this was coming on the heels of a horrible heroin epidemic in the 60s. So there was surprising amount of support for decriminalizing it, yet the black community was not so in favor of that. Tell, tell us a little bit about why they weren't and whether they did or didn't understand, well, I have to assume they didn't understand what the ramifications of that would be. Absolutely. And I was fascinated by this piece of the history because I had known it. All I knew was kind of what we know today, which is um, all of the ways in which the African-American community has been disadvantaged by marijuana criminalization, right? And people getting arrest records, getting incarcerated, even if they don't get incarcerated, getting records. And so then you can't get a job, you Mm. can't get student loans, you can't get public housing. And when I went back to the 1970s, what I found in Washington, D.C. and some other places, but I focused on D.C., was a movement to decriminalize marijuana, just as you said. And then what I found kind of most surprising was that the opposition to that was led by African-American ministers and in D.C., an African-American city council member who himself was a black nationalist, former civil rights worker. Um, And the fact that they opposed decriminalization and then their reasons for opposing it were the things that I found so surprising. Yeah, and share that with us because we didn't really have that perspective. Um, I was in D.C. in school in the 60s, Mm. and I don't think we quite had the perspective of how blacks in those communities felt about the violence in their own communities. And so talk to us, because this also entered when gun control came up. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about how the non-criminal element of D.C. felt why it was so important to have tough laws about drug use and or gun possession. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the marijuana and then the gun that so— As you mentioned, there was this incredible heroin epidemic in the 1960s. And what that meant was that uh, the homicide rate nationally doubled. In Washington, D.C., it tripled. In New York, it more than doubled. And heroin really—people remember the crack years of the 80s, but in the 60s, it was heroin. They tested everyone entering the D.C. jail. In 1964, they concluded that 4% of the people were heroin addicts. By 1969, the 4% had become 45%. Wow. That's just an epidemic tearing through a community. And that caused people, when it came time to consider marijuana decriminalization, that caused people to be very fearful. The idea of marijuana as a gateway drug was very powerful in Mm -hmm. the 1970s. You had people like Jackie Robinson, the baseball great who desegregated the major leagues, going around to black churches and black civic organizations in the late 60s, early 70s saying, don't support marijuana decriminalization because my son, Jackie Jr., was a heroin addict and he started with marijuana. Mm. And when you have Jackie Robinson, right, this was uh, he had recently retired from baseball. Yeah. So he's a huge figure and he's going around and telling people that his own child could fall prey to heroin and that he started with marijuana. That has a real impact uh, in the community. So you have figures like this. There's a fear that if our young people 
right? Black young people, if they use marijuana, we don't have the same resources to overcome addiction that maybe in the suburban communities, the wealthier, whiter communities Mm -hmm. have, right? We don't have access to the fancy drug treatment programs, right? If our kids get caught up on this thing, then they're just going to end up being incarcerated, right? This is what black parents know. So in this moment, early on, when the city had a chance to decriminalize marijuana, they said, no, 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 because they were so fearful that it would lead to worse and worse outcomes. Mm. And you mentioned, I think, an important point in your question, which is, did they know? And I think the answer is, no, not really. That is to say, the decision in the 1970s about whether to decriminalize or not to decriminalize isn't being made with an awareness of what's going to happen in the 1980s and 1990s. They don't know in the 1970s that 10 years later, Congress will pass a law that will mean that if you have that marijuana conviction, you can't get student loans. You can't get into public housing. They don't know that's down the road, right? So that's why in a lot of ways, it's a tragic story um, because of of that, that feature of it. Yeah. You know, there's always, whenever you make any decision, right, that there are unintended consequences or, in this case, collateral damage. But collateral damage doesn't even seem weighty or important enough for the kind of collective damage that has done to black communities. Now now pile on gun control yeah. and, and tell, because that was the next sort of front. And I was fascinated Because I would have thought, well, this is a no-brainer. They're going to want guns controlled in their community. But I, I, the way in which you talk in the book about going back to the, you know, early 1900s and the ability for blacks to be able to protect themselves against what was fierce, fierce hostility and deprivation, really, by whites against blacks, just ne- it, that, that was like an epiphany for me. That like sort of was changing the kaleidoscope of how I thought about gun control in black communities. So tell us a little bit more about what you learned there. Absolutely. So there's something that, um, you know, scholars have referred to as the black tradition of arms, right? This black tradition of of owning guns, because if you think about it, if you can count on the government to protect you, if you can count on law enforcement to protect you, then you might not feel such a need to have mm. a firearm. But if you're African-American, post-slavery, Jim Crow South, places in the North as well, the police aren't responding to your community when you're asking them. Indeed, the police are in cahoots with the Klan, right, that's operating two different... Or they're in the Klan. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. They're one and the same or they're working together. Exactly right. And so in that uh, scenario, you have... I mean, one of the things that I was amazed by, I mean, I knew Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party. You know, there's some well-known... But you, it's hard to find a civil rights leader in the 1960s who's from the South, right? Fannie Lou Hamer, um, who isn't saying, you know, I've got a gun and I'm going to and I'm going to use it if I need to to protect myself. And so that is a 60, 70, 80 year tradition of African-American gun ownership. Um, And so now we get to the 1970s and crime has risen in the 60s, as we talked about. And you have this first generation of black elected officials coming into office. 
throughout cities in America, there's an 800% increase in the 1970s of African-American elected officials nationally because of the Voting Rights Act and the decline of Jim Crow. So now they're in office. They're in mayor's offices. They're in city councils. They're looking at this incredible crime problem. They're saying, well, what can we do? Well, what they can try to do in the cities where law will allow it, and D.C. was one, New York, Chicago, Detroit, they can try to pass local gun control laws. But that runs up against this generation of people that says, wait a minute, gun ownership has always been, it's always been part of our heritage. We've needed it to protect ourselves when the state wouldn't act. Now, gun control does pass. It passes in D.C. and it's now widely popular in African-American. If you look at polls of African-American voters, there's broad support for gun control laws. Um, And the reason for that shift, I think, is we were just talking about when you said, well, the police are the Klan. Well, if the police are the Klan, then, yeah, you need to have your gun. But if it's in the 1970s and you're in a city like Washington, D.C., the police force is rapidly becoming majority African-American. The police chief will soon be black, right? The mayor's black. The city council's majority black. Now there's this sense among citizens that, well, maybe the government will respond, right? Maybe the government will respond to our concerns and claims about crime and The gun ownership, that was always second best, right? In an ideal world, you'd like to be able to rely on the government to protect you and not need to have this gun yourself. People know it's not the greatest form of protection. So for, for those reasons, there's enough of a change where this becomes popular. But then here's the final point. The gun control laws that they pass only operate at the local level. It isn't national gun control. They're going to Congress and they're asking Congress to pass national gun control because they know it doesn't matter if you pass a gun control law in D.C. The guns just come in from Virginia. They come in from Maryland, New York, the same thing, Chicago, the same thing, Baltimore, the same thing. They need Congress to act at a national level. And another one of the tragedies of the book is that they ask Congress for that help, for that assistance to complement what they're doing at the city level. And we know the story of yeah. gun control at the national level, right? <laughs> right. It, it, you know, the NRA takes over and it never happens. 50 years later. Right. So now what we have, in a, in a lot of ways, I argue, and some of my friends, you know, some of my liberal friends don't, don't like this particular conclusion. Um, but I, I feel in a lot of ways that we have the worst of both worlds because we have tough gun laws in cities, Right. So when I was a public defender, I represented lots of young black men who were caught with possession of guns. We have tough gun laws. People are going to prison, but we still have just as many guns because we don't have national gun control. So we have the guns, we have the violence, and we have the incarceration rates. Yeah. So I I want to come back to – this feels like a little bit of a segue, but one of the things that was striking to me was about your dad. Mm. So this is from uh, the obituary of your dad, James Foreman Sr., who was described as a civil rights pioneer, brought a fierce revolutionary vision and masterly organization skills to virtually every civil rights battle in the 60s. He had been the executive secretary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that was known as SNCC and was incredibly significant. So how did your father's work inform you? And your dad died not that long ago. I think it was like 12 Mm -hmm. years ago. So how did his work inform you? 
I mean, I almost feel like, how did it not? Because, (laughs) because my, you know, my dad and also my mom, she wasn't, she wasn't well known in the way that he was, but she was a member of SNCC as well. They met in SNCC. They met working together. Yeah, they worked together. Right. That's how they met. And, uh, and so the two of them together, you know, raised me to believe that fighting for racial justice, that fighting for civil rights was the highest possible calling. I mean, there was just nothing you could do that was more valuable with your time or with your life. So I never felt like, you know, when I became a public defender, you know, sometimes people would say, oh, you know, you turned down the money. and became... it, it never even felt like that. It was in my mind. That's what you do. This is what you did. So I almost feel like in a way I'm more impressed by people who, like, I almost say, well, it's like I went into the family business. You know what I mean? I didn't, I don't deserve credit for this. I was just raised to do this. Right. Um, and so, so I, I feel like that was very true of, of both of them. And I saw the sacrifices that my dad made. I mean, it was, I mean, it was hard for them. They were an interracial couple yeah. in the 1960s, right? And was it still illegal in some states? It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they and and they and, and it was also incredibly stressful. You know, we were you know, there's the COINTEL program, the FBI surveillance of black activists. I mean, my family was aggressively surveilled. We have yeah. my, my dad has hundreds of boxes of FBI files. Um, and so the kind of pressure that you're under, right, you're working all the time. You're not getting paid hardly any money. I'm talking about my parents now. I'm a kid, right? But they're working all the time. They're getting, not getting paid. The FBI is surveilling you. They're, they're sowing division within the civil rights community, right? They're trying to turn, they're trying to create informants and turn people against one another. So by the late 60s, early 70s, there's a lot of distrust, you know, mm. people. And, and so it was hard. Like their lives were very, very hard. So I guess the other thing that I feel like I, you know, learned from them was both the importance of, of making sacrifices, but also, I guess, in a more personal way, you know, I then made certain decisions. Like, I, I, I want to be more involved in my son's life than my dad was able to be involved in ours because yeah. of the commitments that he was making out into the world. You know, it's funny that you uh, bring that up, James, because one of the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize mm. a number of years ago was an African man, mm. and he was killed. In, in uh, Nigeria, uh, rep- uh, in, that's uh, right. representing uh, against the oil, uh, I think, in southeastern Nigeria. But his son accepted the Nobel Prize, and he was a young boy yeah. when his father was killed. And an interviewer asked him the question about, does he resent that his father risked his life mm. in pursuit of his principles at the cost to his family. And the comment he made was, there are some people that want to save the world for their children. And there are some people who want to save their children from the world. Mm. So when I read about your dad, who was, you know, definitely a man not at all reluctant to demand the kinds of change that he thought were necessary for African-Americans to get their rightful place at the table, there was a part of me that made me wonder, well, yeah, it's the family business, but you also saw the sacrifices that they made and therefore 
you and your you you had a brother. Yes. You have a brother. Yep. You and your brother made, and I wonder how that shaped your thinking. I think exactly. I would align myself with the quote that you read. I mean, the sacrifices uh, were so profound and uh, so dramatic, and 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 kind of life altering for for my parents, and then ultimately for us. I mean, we. You know, we grew up in a lot of, there was a lot of turmoil mm. uh, in my early years. And Were you frightened? I don't really remember ever being frightened. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember coming home and, you know, more than once, uh, and there would be, there would be a car out in front of our house and it would be like two guys in suits. Mm-hmm. And um, my mom and my dad had always told us, you know, there, there will be FBI agents. They will be around. You, you know, you may see them. They would describe the kind of cars that they drove. And, and so, you know, when you're a kid, it, it's hard to, to process that. Like, it's hard to know, you know, like, why is the FBI sitting in front of our house, you know? And because in school you're learning, you know, the police are good and law enforcement good. You have to follow the rules. And then, you know, but then you're being watched by the government. And what exactly does that mean? They always would talk to us about our, you know, the phones. They said they were, the phones are probably being recorded. And it's mm-hmm. not like we were taught, you know, we were seven and eight. We, was, we weren't, there's nothing for us to say. But, but I, this is, and this is to my parents' credit, especially my mom, who really was the person that kind of ran the house and was always around. They did an incredible job of both of not not cocooning us but 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 explaining things to us in a way that were was age appropriate that didn't make us scared but also didn't make us think that we were weird or or, mm-hmm. or kind of freaks like I remember when I got older and I got to college and I really became aware of how crazy our childhood was. Yeah, but I didn't you don't know it then. that way as a kid, right? And ki- you'll often read, right? Kids where they grow up in the foster care system. There's often kids will say they didn't even no. know at the time how abnormal this life was. And I guess you know, I would say I would say the same thing. And then to my dad's credit. You know, he really held true to his values and his beliefs. Like he, he continued to live a life. Like he never tried to cash in. He never. He made the sacrifices, he, and he kept doing it for his whole life. I mean, he died poor. Mm. He lived his whole life poor, which as a kid, you're not, you don't love because you like kids yeah, want. Stuff. Yeah, you want stuff. You need stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but that's just how he that, that's how he did it, and I honor that. So, did he clash at all with the other activists who were seemingly cashing in? I wouldn't say that. I would say that he he continued to do what he was going to do, which and was that's local what he was driven by: yeah. community organizing, neighborhood, going door to door, block to block. That's what he was driven by, and that's what he did. Um, and I don't think he was—he n- n- never shared with us that there was any—that he was resentful in any way. Um, he held in high regard, you know, people that went into elected office, became in, con- in Congress. He uh, talked talked to us very highly mm-hmm. about everybody that we knew that maybe had a higher public profile. Lots of people that were doing incredible work in different spheres— he he treasured them, and and we we just never heard a bad word um, about any of those folks from him. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I 
was thinking about when I when I was reading uh, the book, and I've done uh, some work in early childhood mm. education, um, particularly in low income communities. So, and you're the founder of the Maya Angelou Charter School. So, when I was reading the book for our listeners, the book is organized by the origins and then the consequences. And um, they include the marijuana that we're talking about, gun control, um, the role of black mayors and judges and and all of that and how this informed us. But, you know, to me and I assume to you, incarceration is certainly an enormous detrimental impact. But the but the other issue is the origin of these kids and these families mm. not having the opportunities to be well-educated, to have access to jobs, to have access to resources. So how do you think these problems can get dealt with on parallel tracks? And, and what do you see in the charter school that you started about what it takes to begin to make those changes? Well, the school— That's a lot of questions. Yeah, but. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the school—we started the school, and David Domenici and I kind of started it together, and we worked with a whole community of people that kind of helped us get it off the ground. But the school was started in response to the fact that, you know, I'm working in juvenile court, and I'm representing young people— and I love being a public defender representing young people trying to keep them out of prison and jails because of how toxic those places are. But at the same time, one of my great frustrations that, is that even when I would win a case, my clients would end up going back to the same community, the same school, the same state that they had been in when they got arrested. And um, in many cases, they needed and they deserve better than that, particularly on the education front. They needed and they yeah. deserve better than that. And so when I would talk to my clients and I would ask them, well, what do you, what would it take for you to not become my client again? Like, I love you, but I don't want to see you again. What's that? All, what's, how's that going to happen? And they would always talk about having a good school because many of them had been kicked out of the traditional schools already and they had been shunted into alternative schools, which were should, worse. Right. Which were <laughs> worse, which needed the best teachers, but didn't get them and needed the best materials and didn't get them. And they also wanted a chance to work. They wanted a chance to make money. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, always talk about whenever I'm talking to anybody who's working with young people in, you know, poor neighborhoods is, is people, kids want a chance to work. They want a chance to get money in their pockets. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that people who have never been poor have an appreciation for what it means to be poor. to not have any money as a teenager mm. right to to and so that liberty that comes with having a few dollars in your pocket, that decision that just if you see that candy bar, you can go buy it, or that if you want to go to the movies on Friday night, Friday night you can do it. Like that is it, to not have that is really, really, really hard. And so we started the school with that idea that we would have an excellent school and young people that we educated would also have a chance to work. So we actually ran in our early days, we ran a pizza shop and then we ran a catering restaurant that, that kids worked in. In the high school. In the school, yeah. So in my mind, if we want to – to me, the, the way I see solving these problems on a parallel track is actually pretty straightforward. 
Because over the last 50 years, what you've seen is you've seen African-American leaders and communities, right, asking for what I like to call all of the above approach to fighting crime and violence, right? They want more police and prosecutors, but they also want more money for housing, more money for job training programs, more money for education, more money for drug treatment, more money for mental health treatment, quality after-school programs, well-funded libraries, right? All the things that are not, like, nothing's unusual about that request. Like, that's why, you know, people, when they move to the suburbs, they're like, well, I moved to the suburbs. Why? Because I wanted these things, right? So the list of what people want is very similar. Um, But for the last 50 years, what they've gotten from the government overwhelmingly has been one part of that all of the above strategy. It's been money for police and prosecutors. It's been and prisons. It's been building the largest prison system in the world. And so what I think we need to do now today is we need massively to redirect resources um, away from spending in the criminal system. And we need to direct those resources towards spending in all of these other places that I just mentioned. So I think what to do is actually pretty straightforward at this point. It's developing the political will, developing the coalitions, right, developing the advocacy strategies to push and to make those things happen. Thanks again to James Foreman Jr. You can hear the second part of my interview next week on Just the Right Book and make sure to pick up a copy of James's book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America, which is out now. I'm hoping you'll find it just as riveting as I did. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. What are the books that you're reading or who would you like to hear on this podcast and what is the book that changed your life? Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keo. Thank you all so much for listening.